0: Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter number 27, and we are moving through the book of, excuse me, chapter 26. We're moving through the book of Job on Wednesday nights, and we are taking one chapter a week. And of course, uh, if you've been with us, last week I was, in, I was preaching in Atlanta, so we took a break from Job. But if you've been with us, you know that the book of Job is primarily a conversation between Job and his three friends that conversation is pretty much coming to an end now. Uh, there was these three different rounds that took place where a friend would speak and uh, Job would respond. The other friend would speak, Job would respond. Another friend would speak, Job would respond. That would be round one. They'd do it again, round two, round three. If you remember uh, his three friends, Zophar the Naamathite, he uh, spoke for the last time in Job chapter 20. He cut out at round two and did not continue on to round three, Eliphaz the Temanite spoke for the last time in chapter 22, and Bildad the Shuhite spoke for the last time in chapter 25. What we have in chapter 26 is the end of uh, this conversation, and and there's a few chapters left in this round, but it's uh, Job responding to Bildad the Shuhite, and he's really responding to all of his friends. And we're going to see Job kind of wrap up this conversation over the next several chapters, And then a new guy, a young guy, who's been sitting off to the side by the name of Elihu, will speak. And we'll analyze his speech and go through that for a few chapters. And then the book gets really exciting when God speaks. And then, of course, the book ends with uh, a narrative, the ending of the story of Job. So in chapter 26, we have Job responding to Bildad, the Shuhite. And I want you to notice that the chapter is kind of divided into two sections. If you look at verses 2 through 6, you'll see a passage that is dealing with what I would refer to as soul winning or outreach, reaching people with the gospel. And then in verses 7 through 14, we have a passage that's dealing with uh, science and the fact that God's power and God's glory is over nature and uh, science. But we'll start here in verse number 1, of course. This is Job's response to Bildad. The Bible says, but Job answered and said. And I want you to notice that in the next several chapters, uh, excuse me, in the next several verses, verses 2 through 6, he's going to explain, and if you're taking notes tonight, I have always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. He's going to explain what it is that we should do as uh, soul winners, as followers of Christ, as Christians, or as Old Testament saints, even here in the Old Testament, he explains that there is two things um, that we should do. And I've, I've taught you this in our church, and I'll say it again tonight. When it comes to New Testament Christianity, when it comes to uh, the local New Testament church, everything we do should really fall under two categories. We are either reaching people or we are teaching people. We are to reach and we are to teach. And this is what Job is uh, talking about. Notice here in verse 2 how he speaks of reaching people that need help. He says, how has thou helped him that is without power? And if you remember, Job's been accused by his friends over and over saying that he hasn't helped people, that he hasn't been there for them, that he hasn't provided uh, for for the needs. And now he's kind of turning it around on them. He says, well, how has thou helped him that is without power? Thou savest, uh, or how, he says, savest thou the arm that hath no strength. And he's talking about the fact that there are some people who cannot save themselves, who cannot help themselves, and uh, they need help. And the idea is that we are to go and to reach those people. He says, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? I'm not going to keep your place in Job. That's obviously our text for tonight. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Luke. Luke chapter number 4 in the New Testament. Luke chapter number 4. I'd like you to look down at verse number 18. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 when we go out soul winning, when we go out to reach people with the gospel, our job is to go and help those that are without power. Because when it comes to salvation, everyone is without power. No one is able to save themselves. No one is able to, uh, to, to bring deliverance. Uh, for themselves. This is why the Bible says that uh, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet without strength, the Bible says. When we were unable to help ourselves... Christ came, and then Christ has given us that ministry. If you're there in Luke chapter 4, look at verse 18. This is, in Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus really at the beginning of his ministry. He just was baptized. He just went to the wilderness, and he was tempted of the devil. And now he's coming in to begin his ministry, and the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue. Uh, notice verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for it to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. I want you to notice, this is how Jesus kicked off his ministry. He went to the synagogue. They handed him the Bible. They handed him the book of Isaiah. He opens it up. Notice it says, uh, that he found the place where it was written. This was very purposeful. He did not just open up and start reading. He specifically went to this passage. And in verse 18, we have a quote from the book of Isaiah. Notice what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and reco- and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then I love how it ends in verse 20. The Bible says, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And Jesus said, you know, I came to Preach the gospel to the poor. He said, I came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and uh, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And what he's saying is this I came to help those that can't help themselves. I came to uh, help those, how Job would say it, that are without power. I came to save thou the arm that hath no strength. And oftentimes, and we won't take the time to run the verses, but oftentimes throughout the Bible, you'll, uh, you'll uh, equate, or you'll see verses that equate the salvation with the arm, with the strong arm of the Lord. And here we're told about saving the one whose arm has no strength. And when we're, going out to reach people, we are going out to reach those that are captive and set them at liberty. Those that are blind and to restore their sight. Those that cannot help themselves, we are to go and reach those people. Go to Mark chapter 16 if you would. Mark chapter 16. You're there in Luke if you just flip back to Mark chapter 16. Everything we do should fall in the category, reach and teach. Reach and teach. You say, who are we reaching? Those that need help. And and let me say this, spiritually, everybody needs help. Spiritually, nobody can save themselves. Spiritually, everybody's arm had no strength. Everyone is without power. But oftentimes, and if you're a soul winner, you know this is true, oftentimes it is those who are physically uh, have no strength, and those who are physically without power that are the most receptive. Oftentimes when we find the people who need the most help, even just physically, even in life, they also tend to be the ones that are most receptive, which is why Jesus said, I came to preach the gospel to the poor. Why? Because the poor were the most receptive. He said, I came to set at liberty those that are captive. He said, I came to find, he said, they that are holy, not a physician, he said, but they that are sick. He said, I came to find those that need help. Mark 16 and verse 15 says this, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Everything we do should fall into this category. Reach people. We have to reach people with the gospel. How do we do that? We do that by preaching the word of God. Keep your place right there in Mark and go back to Job 26. Look at verse 4. Job chapter 26. And look at verse 4. Notice what he says. He says, To whom hast thou uttered words? I want you to notice those words there. He says, utter. The word utter means to speak. He says, says, Who have you helped? He said, Who have you helped that wasn't able to help themselves? And who have you strengthened whose arm had no strength? Then he says, To whom hast thou uttered words? In Ephesians 6.19, you don't have to turn there, the Apostle Paul said this, he said, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The way that we uh, preach the gospel is not by handing out a flyer, it's not by handing out a door hanger, it's not by putting a bunch of tracks on doors. Uh, uh, The way we reach people with the gospel is by opening our mouths, uttering Uh, 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 opening our mouths and, and, and preaching the gospel clearly, communicating it confidently, boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel. So everything we do should fall under this category. Reach people. We reach people with the gospel. But then there's another category. Go back to Job 26. Look at verse 3. Then he says this. He says, How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? He said, it's not just enough to help him that doesn't have any strength. It's not just enough to strengthen him whose arm is not able, uh, uh, has no strength. It's not just enough to utter words to whom thou, thou hast uttered words. But then he says this, he says, how has thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? That idea there is that you are going further than just helping them, but now you're training them, now you're counseling them. We might call that discipleship. How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? Go to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Notice verse number 19. Matthew 28 and verse 19. And you've heard me say this before, and this has been kind of a theme with me lately. Something that I think our church has always been about, but maybe the Lord is helping me to re-emphasize it or re-energize it in our church. We've got the aspect of reaching people, but we also have the aspect of, of teaching people. We have reaching, that's the soul winning, and then we have teaching, that's discipleship. Matthew twenty eight nineteen says this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That teach all nations is the same thing we just read in Mark sixteen fifteen, where he says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Notice, the first step is we go and get them saved. We go and preach the gospel. We teach all nations. The second step is that we should be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Notice the third step, verse 20, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. See, everything we do should fall under these categories. Reach and teach. Reach people with the gospel and disciple believers. Help them to learn and help them to grow. See, the great commission is that we go out there preach the gospel to people, then we bring them in here, baptize them, and teach them to observe all things. That's what God has left for us. That's what the commission is that He's left for the New Testament church. Go to Second Timothy if you would. If you find all the T-books, they're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. 2nd Timothy, chapter number 2. I love, the, I love the fact that Verity Baptist Church is a soul-winning church. And I, and I appreciate that. I don't, I don't know that there are many churches that have the percentages of, of soul winners that, that a church like this has. Obviously, in the new IFB, whenever you start a brand new church and you start with 20 people or 30 people, you have 100% going soul winning because you're starting with 20 people that have already been discipled. And, and we understand that. But once you actually start reaching new people, that, that number goes down. Uh, A a church that is reaching new people is never going to have 100% uh, uh, soul-winning attendance because people don't just get saved and then they're just soul-winning that same day. Uh, A church that is reaching new people is never going to have 100% of its members tithing, 100% of its members being faithful to all the services. We understand that, but our church runs somewhere between 180 and 200 people on a Sunday morning, and we have about 100 of those that go out every week and preach the gospel. And I'm not saying that in a, in a, in a bragging way. I, I, I'm saying I, I'm thankful that we have a church that understands that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are to go and reach people with the gospel. But I do want to encourage some of you soul winners, how many of you are teaching? How, how many of you are actively taking those people that you've reached and working with them communicating with them, developing relationships, offering rides, doing whatever it is that you need to do to get them in church. Because look, it's not, we, we've got two things we're doing here, reaching and teaching. Reaching and teaching. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the Bible says this, and the things, Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, and the things that thou has heard of me among many witnesses, notice the same, commit thou to faithful men. Why? He says, look, there are things, this is Paul here speaking as a spiritual leader. And, and he's telling uh, Timothy, he's saying, the things that thou hast heard of, um, of me among many witnesses... He said, the the things you've seen me do, the things you've heard me teach, the the things I've told you that you need to establish in the church, he says, the same commit thou to faithful men, praise the Lord, that we've got some faithful men and some faithful ladies here at Verity Baptist Church. But notice, you say, why? Why are we supposed to teach you things? Why do you show up to a Wednesday night Bible? I mean, have you ever thought about that? I'm not trying to make our Wednesday night Bible attendance go down. Maybe I shouldn't ask this question because some of you will be like, oh, you're right, maybe I shouldn't come back. But have you ever thought, why do you show up to church on a Wednesday night? Why do you show up to church on a Sunday night? Why do you show up to church on a Sunday morning? Why do, why, why do we work so hard at a church like this to preach sermons that are highly applicable, highly practical? Just uh, just, just earlier today, my wife was reading something to me, and it was a, a, a Christian thing, and, and she was reading it, and we're just kind of, by, by the time she was done, we're just kind of rolling our eyes, and we're like, that was just a big waste of breath. You know, a bunch of fluff, and I. But I, I was thinking to myself, yeah. You know, it's much easier to just speak, you know, Christian verbiage. It's a lot harder to preach something that actually you can put into practice. Amen. We work very hard here to preach sermons that are very practical, very applicable. For you, why do we do that? Second Timothy 2 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, notice, who shall be able to teach others also. Amen. Our job is to reach people, but our job is also to teach people. You've heard me say this before. I don't preach, and, 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 and I hope you understand this, and I don't mean this in, a, in an arrogant way, but I don't preach to be heard. I preach to be repeated. The reason we put a sheet of paper in your bulletin, the reason that I'm constantly encouraging you to take notes and write things down. You say, why? So you can go home and put them in a file somewhere, feel good because you went to church? No, I hope that you'll take the things you learn here and as a faithful man and as a faithful woman, you'll teach those to others. He says that they might teach others also. And here's the question I have. Is there any... Christian in your life, is there any new believer? Is there any new convert? Is there anybody in your life that you're working with? That you're helping? You're praying for? Say, ah, Pastor, I go soul winning. Praise the Lord for it. But that's only part of what we're doing. Our job is to reach and our job is to teach. And I'm not saying this in an arrogant way, and I'm not trying to beat up on you, but I I want to ask this question have you ever had a convert baptized? So been, I'm a great soul winner. I go out soul winning and get 30 people saved every Saturday. Oh, okay. Well, you know, there's probably a problem with that, number one. But okay. How many of your comrades have been baptized? Have you ever thought about the fact that our church has a hundred soul winners? If our hundred soul winners went out, and in one year's time, our hundred soul winners went out and reached somebody with the gospel, got them in church, baptized, discipled them, and had them sitting with you, next to you, in church... Imagine what we could do in this city. And here's all I'm telling you. Here's all I'm telling you. The Great Commission is reach and teach. Our job is to reach people with the gospel, and then we are to take the things. You are to take the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, and not just me. Every pastor and preacher that's ever influenced your life, and the same we're supposed to commit to faithful men. Why? Who shall be able to teach others also. Look, every Paul needs a Timothy. You should have a Timothy in your life. You should have a... I don't know what the Tim, Timothy, you know, version of a female name is. Timotha. There should be someone in your life you're working on. Someone in your life you're praying for. Some, I mean, at least your children, you should be taking the things you learn here and teaching them to your children. Here, Job says, has thou... He says, how has thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And that's the question I have for you. I'm not Job, and I'm not speaking to Bildad, but I am your pastor, and I'm asking you, how has thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how has thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? Who have you ever discipled? Who, who, I'm not saying who, who you've gotten saved. Hopefully, you've gotten people saved. But how many of the people you have got saved, you went back and, and explained to them what baptism was? Taught them how to read the Bible. Bought them a Bible. Got them a Bible reading chart. And explained to them, here's how you read. And maybe you told them, you started in Proverbs, you started in John. And, and let me help you with this. And let me teach you how to pray. And let me teach you how to come soul winning with me. I'll teach you how to do. When have you ever done that? And if you haven't, I want to encourage you, get on it. Because our job is to be able to teach those who shall be able to teach others also. Keep your place right there in 2 Timothy. Go back to Job 26. Job 26 and verse 4. To whom hast thou uttered words? Notice the last part of verse 4. And whose spirit came from thee. He says, whose spirit came from thee? That's a very interesting phrase there. And Based off the context and the fact that he's talking about the fact that who have you uttered words? And Paul said, and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The fact that he talks about helping those who need help and giving strength to those whose arms do not have strength. And the fact that he's talking about counseling. I definitely believe that he's referring here to the salvation process. Who shall be able to teach others also is discipleship. But he's talking about the fact that when we get somebody saved, we are the ones that bring them, and don't misunderstand me, obviously God is the one that uh, gives them the, the spirit and, and saves them, but that's done through our work. He says, whose spirit came from thee. Go back to First Timothy if you would. First Timothy. Let me explain something to you. The Bible teaches this concept that when somebody gets saved, they become a child of God. We're going to talk about that in our Declaring Doctrine series, not this Sunday night, but next Sunday night. We'll talk about the doctrine of the new man, a divine nature that God puts in you. But you know, we partake in that as well. The Bible talks about the fact that we get to, Paul used terms like this, that we get to save some. And, and Jesus gave the analogy that salvation is being born again. And just like someone's born physically, it requires both male and female uh, to, to take process in that. When somebody's born spiritually, it requires God and us. God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Here when Job says, Job says, and whose spirit came from thee, he's talking about the fact that when we, in the same way that we physically have children, and our flesh is, our DNA is passed down to them, he says, our spirit, the spiritual life of an individual, can come from us. This is how Paul said it, 1 Timothy 1.1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Verse 2, unto Timothy, notice these words, my own son in the faith. He he called Timothy his son. Now, Timothy was not physically his son, but he was his spiritual son. Timothy, my own son in the faith. Paul is saying to Timothy, your spirit came from me. In fact, Paul would say later on in a different book, he's talking about the fact that you have many teachers, but not many fathers. And he's saying that spiritually, Timothy, you are my own son of faith. This is a theme with the Apostle Paul. Look down at verse 18, same chapter. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee. Notice the words, son Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 2. 2 Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Thou therefore, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, thou therefore my son. Again, not a physical son, but a spiritual son. And it wasn't just Timothy. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 1. You're there in 2 Timothy. Flip over to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Verse 4, the Bible says, To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Again, Titus was not his physical son. But he said, you're my son after the common faith. You're my son in the faith. Go to Philemon. You're there in Titus. Philemon, chapter 1. Look at verse 10. Philemon one ten. I beseech thee, for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my bond. You know, Paul understood, and Paul's not taking the place of God the Father here, but Paul understood that when he went and got somebody saved, when he uh, ministered to somebody, their spirit, he could say, came from me, and, and, and he called them his spiritual son. Look, every time you go out and get somebody saved, that's your spiritual son. That's your spiritual daughter. You labored together with God to bring birth to that spiritual son. And what I often tell people is, you know, we get real excited about somebody getting saved and we should get excited about somebody getting saved and somebody gets saved and we high-five each other and, ah, praise the Lord, hallelujah. You know, but here, here's the thing. When somebody has a child, when somebody gives birth, you know, we, we my wife and I have six children. She gave birth to all of them. I didn't... Do much. But you know, when, when, when the, and we have our babies at home, we have midwives and all these things, but you know when the, when the baby's born, we're, we're congratulating ourselves and all those things, but you know, it's not like we just take the baby and we're like, all right, here here you go, midwife, there you go. We're going to go do our own thing now. We're going to go have dinner. You know When you have a baby, the work has just begun. Amen. You, you have a baby, but now you have to help that baby. Now you have to feed that baby. Now you have to care for that baby. Now you have to raise that baby. Now you have to discipline that baby. And look, when you get somebody saved, go ahead and high-five yourself and rejoice, but realize the work has just begun. It's our job to love them. It's our job to connect with them. It's our job to to try to help them grow. And if they don't want to come, that's fine. But let that be because they chose not to, not because you were lazy and you didn't even try. Not because you were lazy and you don't even remember what their name was. To be able to get them, to be able to pray for them. See, everything we do, everything we do falls under these two categories. Reach and teach. Reach and teach. Why do we go soul winning? To reach people. Why do we have Wednesday night church to teach people? Why do we have discipleship class to teach people? Some of you would be good. You say, ah, you know, I'm too good for discipleship class. It might be good if you went and got a convert and had your convert sit with you in discipleship class. Yeah. Hey, I'll go with you to discipleship class. I'll, I'll, and we'll, we'll get coffee beforehand. Here's all I'm telling you is that Job asked these very specific questions to his friends. He says, To whom hast thou uttered words? He says, How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? And I'm just asking you the same question Who are you working on? Who's your Timothy, Paul? Because our job is. To commit the things that we know to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also they are our spiritual children, they are the children that God has given us that we might train them in the things of the Lord. go back to job twenty six job twenty six we see that we see first in these verses what we should do, what should we do reach and teach, reach and teach. Then we see, in verses 5 and 6, why we should do it. What should we do? Reach and teach. Why should we do it? Death and hell. Notice verse 5. Dead dead things are formed under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. In verse 5, it's interesting to me because he mentions death. He says dead things. Then he mentions the waters. Dead things are formed from under the waters. And then in verse 6, he mentions hell. Hell is naked before him, and destruction hath no coverings. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure why he mentions dead things are formed from under the water. I know that if you do some research, they've done studies where they believe that there's a lot of dead things and a lot of dead people in the water. And these, these are just scientists that don't even believe the Bible. If you take into consideration the fact that there was a worldwide flood where God killed everybody on earth with water, then I would say, yeah, probably there are lots of dead things in the water. What's interesting to me, though, is, is, is not what he means by that. I'm not sure what he means. Maybe one day my understanding will grow with that. But it's a fact that he mentions death, water, and hell. And in Revelation, if you would, keep your place in Job, go to Revelation, last book in the New Testament, should be fairly easy easy to find. Revelation chapter 20. Do me a favor, when you get to Revelation, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, when we read about the great white throne judgment, where God is going to judge all of the unsaved, I want you to notice what he mentions. Revelation 20 verse 13. And the sea... And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. There's a lot of dead people in the sea, apparently. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Notice, and death and hell. Notice all of these things are mentioned in Job 26, 5 and 6. Dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof hell is naked before him and destruction hath no covering here we're told and the sea gave up the dead which are in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire and the point is this what are we to do we are to reach and teach why should we do it because of death and hell because of the fact that people die. And when they die without Christ, they go to hell. That's why we do what we do. That's why we give up. You know, people, I don't understand what people think. They think, oh, these people, hundred people in our church must just have nothing to do on a Saturday. They, can't, they, they couldn't figure out what to do on a Saturday. I'll tell you why people give up their Saturdays, because people are dying and going to hell. Because one day, the Bible says, there's a judgment coming called the great white throne, and the sea will give up the dead which are in it, and death and hell will, be deliver, will deliver up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Your neighbor will be there. By the way, you and I, all of us will be there. The great white throne, we don't get to run from it. The Bible says that, that the earth and the heavens flood away. Everyone will be there. Now, believers will not be judged as the great white throne. Believers have a different judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about that uh, soon in our Declaring Doctrine series. We won't be there. If you're saved, you will not be there to be judged, but you will be there. There'll be two crowds there. Those that are saved and those that are not saved. Those that are not saved will be judged for their works, and the Bible says that they will all be found wanting. There is none that doeth good, There is none that seeketh after God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The rest of us will just be there as witnesses. And look, let me tell you something. Everybody you know who you refuse to preach the gospel to, every family member, every co-worker, every neighbor will be there and you will see them escorted into hell. There's a reason why in this context, then God tells us that he must wipe away our tears from our eyes. I'm just telling you what Job is saying. Job is saying what we should do. What should we do? We should reach and teach. And he tells us why we should do it. We should do it because of death and hell. I want you to notice it's interesting too that Job teaches a, a very um, appropriate doctrine on hell. If you look at, keep your finger there in Revelation, go back to Job 26 verse 6. He says, hell is naked before him. The hymn there is referring to God. And destruction, hell is referring to destruction, hath no covering. Today there are those who teach that hell is separation from God, but the Bible teaches that hell is not separation from God. In fact, God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is overseeing hell. And this is what Job is referring to in verse 6. He says, hell is naked before him. Hell is not something far away that God's not... Uh, a part of. It. It's naked. It's open before him. Destruction hath no covering. Revelation 14. If you kept your place in Revelation, look at Revelation 14 and verse 10. Revelation 14 and verse 10 says this. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Revelation fourteen ten, Which was poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Notice the last part of verse 10. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is naked before him, and destruction hath no covering. Go back to Job 26. So we see that Job teaches us what we should do. We should reach and teach why we should do it because of death and hell. And then we enter into the second part of this chapter. The first part dealt with soul winning, evangelism, outreach, The second part has a theme of science. And the book of Job actually deals a lot with science. And for the rest of this chapter, from verses 7 through 14, Job mentions God's glory and power over nature and science. And I want to just kind of break this down for you, and we'll do it as quickly as we can. Before we jump into this section of the chapter, I want you to notice that the book of Job, we're told may have been written anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 years before Christ. So we're 2,000 years after Christ. This book could potentially be 3,500 years old, maybe even 4,000 years. I, I don't know that I agree with that. I, I would probably go with the more the 1,500-year range. I personally believe that the book of Job takes place either during the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or during the time in which the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They were there for 400 some odd years. Uh, probably during that time, in my opinion, is when the book of Job takes place. That does not make it chronologically the oldest book, but it makes it a pretty old book. Maybe 1,500 years before Christ. And I want you to notice in verse 7, he says this. This is Job speaking about God. He stretched out the north. And when he's referring to the north here, he's referring to that which is north of earth. So not north in earth. Of course, we live on a sphere. We live on a globe. And if you go north long enough, eventually you'll start going south. We talked about that on Sunday night. But here he's talking about, he stretched out the north. And he's talking about that which is north. If you see earth, that which is above earth. He says he stretched out the north. Notice, over the empty place what is he referring to when he says empty place he's referring to what you and I today would call outer space and because outer space is an empty place he stretched out the north over the empty place you say i don't think he's talking about space cuz what job is mentioning here is astronomy the study of space he stretched out the earth over the empty place. You say, I don't, I don't know that empty place is referring to outer space. Okay, well, look at the last part of the verse. And hangeth the earth upon nothing. Job is referring to the fact that the earth is floating in space. Now, remember that around the time that the book of Job is written, 1,500 years before Christ, People believe that the earth sat upon the back of a large animal. People believe that the earth sat upon pillars. But Job here is proclaiming 1500 years before Christ that the earth is free, is, is free floating in space. It's not hanging on anything. It's not hanging by anything. He says, He stretched out the north over the empty place, the outer space, and hangeth, he's referring to God, he says, God hangeth the earth upon nothing. How could Job, 1500 years before Christ, know astronomy, the study of space, that the earth is free-floating, in space, that's not it though. Look at verse eight. Then he says this: He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. In in verse seven, he mentions astronomy, the study of space. In verse eight, Job mentions the cycles of evaporation and precipitation, the study of rainfall. The fact that God bindeth up the waters in His thick clouds, the fact that the water from the earth evaporates up into the clouds and then precipitation causes it to rain back down on the earth, he says, He bindeth up the waters in His thick clouds and the cloud is not run unto, under them. In verse 7, he mentioned astronomy. In verse 8, he mentions the cycles of evaporation and precipitation. And then in verse 8, he also mentions uh, mythology. Just the study of clouds in general. And he mentions this when he mentions the density of clouds. Look at verse 8 again. He bindeth up the waters, notice, in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He's referring to the fact that he's aware that these clouds that are floating up in the uh, uh, sky have density. That they're holding water... And they're thick clouds and they're not rent. They don't break. They don't burst with the water till precipitation causes the rain to fall. He mentions astronomy. He mentions evaporation and precipitation. He mentions uh, nephology, the study of clouds. Then he mentions gravity and inertia. Notice verse 9. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. Verse 10. He hath compassed the waters with bounds, until the day and night come to an end. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at His reproof. Notice verse 12. He divideth the sea with his power. In verse 10, he talks about the fact that God has compassed the water with bounds. And in other passages of scripture, we're told that God set limits upon the water and that the water, it would not be allowed, the ocean water would not be allowed to come up uh, 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 upon the earth. If you were to ask a scientist today, why is it that the ocean waters do not come upon the earth? The answer to the question would be gravity and inertia gravity and inertia the the pulling uh of the tides by gravity And here, Job, and you might say, well, Job's just kind of ranting. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. It's just kind of interesting to me that he talks about the empty place. He talks about the earth hangeth upon nothing. He talks about the cycles of evaporation and precipitation. He talks about the the fact that the clouds uh, are dense and hold water. And then he also, in that talk, mentions the fact that the waters cannot come upon the earth. It's almost like he understands that the empty place and the earth hanging upon nothing and, and And the moon and the different things out in space all affect the gravity and inertia of the earth and that's what keeps the water from coming upon the earth. He mentions gravity and inertia which keeps the ocean's waters from coming onto the land produces tides. Then he mentions stars and constellations. Look at verse 13. By his spirit he had garnished the heavens. The word garnish means to decorate. Job says... God, he said. Have you ever noticed how God decorated the heavens? And look, for for hundreds and thousands of years, human beings have looked up at the sky and identified the same constellations in the sky that we can identify today, because God, by His Spirit, hath garnished the heavens. He's put stars and constellations up in the sky. He's decorated them, and we can identify them and we can see them. Then he mentions paleontology. Now, this one's a stretch because when Job mentions them, the dinosaurs are still alive. But I want you to notice he mentions them. Verse 13 By his spirit, he hath garnished the heavens. Then he says this He hath formed the crooked serpent. And when Job refers to a crooked serpent here, he's referring to a dinosaur. You say, I don't know, It sounds like he's just talking about a serpent that's bent, a crooked serpent. Well, go to Isaiah 27 if you would, and I'll just show you this real quickly. Isaiah 27, you're there in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, this is of course, referring to Leviathan, because Job is going to go into a lot of detail. The book of Job goes into a lot of detail about Leviathan and behemoth and dinosaurs, uh, and, and we're going to look at that uh, in detail when we get to those chapters. But in Isaiah 27, verse 1, notice what the Bible says. This is just one verse. There's lots of verses we could look at. In that day, the Lord with his sword and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. Notice the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that, notice these words, crooked serpent. That's what Job was referring to in Job 26, 13. By his spirit, he hath garnished the heavens. He hath uh, formed the crooked serpent. Here in Isaiah 27, We read about even Leviathan, the crooked serpent. Notice, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is not just a snake or a serpent in the sense that you and I would think of. This is a dragon. This is what the Bible refers to as a dragon. And this is what we in in, in modern times we you call a dinosaur. And look, today we as Christians were mocked at this. Let me let you in on a little secret. The science world, when it comes to, to evolution and dinosaurs, is lying to you. The science world tells you that no human being has ever seen a dinosaur. Dinosaurs did not walk with men. That is not true. That is not true biblically. That is not true logically. The Bible, I mean, we're going to see that Job goes into detail about the fact, the book of Job goes into detail about the fact that there was these dinosaurs walking upon the earth at the time that Job lived. And he, um, here, uh, Leviathan, that crooked serpent, is one of them. You say, well, I don't see the word dinosaur. The word dinosaur was invented like 200 years ago. Before that, you know what they were called? They are called dragons. You say, ah, the uh, dragon's a mystical being. Okay, so when a scientist tells you about a large reptile a big large reptile with scales and fangs and they're scary and they call them a dinosaur. That's science. But when Job, living 1500 years before Christ, describes pretty much the exact same thing. A large reptile that's scary, that has fangs, that has claws, and he calls it a dragon. Now that's mythical. They're describing the exact same animal. People say, oh, no human being has ever seen a dinosaur. Okay, then explain to me why every ancient civilization, whether it was in Europe, whether it was in Asia, whether it was in Africa, whether it was in South America, every ancient civilization has drawings of big, huge lizards. That surprisingly looked like something that no human being ever saw, but yet 200 years ago we began to dig them up out of the earth. We call them dinosaurs, but that's not what they called them. So it must be mythical. You're insane. Here, Job is talking about this crooked serpent, Leviathan, the piercing serpent, the crooked serpent, the dragon. It is in the sea. You say you believe in dragons? Absolutely. You say, why? Because I believe in God and God's science is always correct. Job 26, verse 14. Notice what he says. Lo, these are parts of his ways. It's interesting to me because Job goes on and talks about all these scientific things, and he says, and and then it's it's almost like he describes our society today. He's living 1,500 years before Christ. We're living 2,000 some odd years after Christ. And here's what he says, and it's true today. Lo, these are parts of his ways. All these things, science, nature, space, these are parts of his ways. But how little a portion is heard of him. Isn't it true that God created and gave us all these things, yet we as human beings give God very little credit and glory for it? But how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Let me just finish with this idea on the Bible and science. The Bible is not necessarily a science book, but the Bible does contain science in it. The Bible contains a lot of science. And I would just say this, as Bible-believing Christians, we should understand... That the Bible is always scientifically accurate, as we saw in Job 26. In fact, usually, whenever the Bible seems to be inaccurate, it's because science has not yet caught up with the Bible. Amen. Because they will realize eventually, oh, the Bible is right. See, the Bible is always scientifically accurate, and I would also say this the Bible is always scientifically ahead. Let me just give you some examples. I'm not going to run all the verses. I'll just read this for you. The Bible taught against bloodletting, a common practice for years in the medical world. And at the time of Moses, God said, don't do it. The Bible taught to wash your hands in running water long before doctors figured out that they were spreading disease by washing their hands in standing or stagnant water. I mean, I think it was just 300 years ago doctors figured out that we should probably start washing our hands in running water because we're spreading disease by just having sitting water in a bucket, and all of us washing our hands there. The Bible taught that in the book of Leviticus, to wash your hands in running water. The Bible taught about fire and lava in the core or the center of the earth. The Bible taught that the earth was round, not flat from the beginning. The Bible taught that the earth floats in space. We saw that in our chapter tonight. The Bible foretold that light travels. The Bible foretold that there are fountains on the ocean floor. The Bible foretold of sea currents in the ocean. The Bible is not a science book. It does contain science. But whenever the Bible speaks on science, the Bible is always scientifically accurate and the Bible is always scientifically ahead. You say, why would Job just randomly go into all these scientific things that we know to be true today? 1,500 years before Christ, when he would say that the earth, that God hangeth the earth upon nothing, people would say, you're crazy, Job. Everybody knows the earth is upon the shell of a giant turtle. Why would God have Job do this? Here's why. Because the fact that the Bible foretells signs accurately and ahead of human understanding of science is a proof that the Bible was not written by man. Amen. but It was written by God. Because it is God who created these things. It is God who formed these things. It is the God who has of nature that has supremacy over science and nature. So Job ends this chapter by saying, Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Let's fire ahead to another word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this chapter. Thank you for the book of Job. Think of the fact that there are so many proofs within the Bible that prove to us that this book was not written or orchestrated by man. There's scientific facts in the Bible that are accurate and well ahead of our human science. There's fulfilled prophecy that could not have happened and yet it was foretold hundreds and thousands of years ahead of time. There are things in this book that cannot be explained. And we know that this book was written by God. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for the book of Job. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all, all all our church, for those that are not soul winners, help them to get a fire burning in their heart, to reach people with the gospel, to realize that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And Lord, for those who are soul wonders, help them to, to, to work hard and not only reaching, but teaching. At finding a, a Timothy and a Titus, that they, uh, a son in the faith or a daughter in the faith that they could invest time in, that they could love on, that they could pray for, that they could uh, disciple them and help them grow. Lord, help us to remember what you left us here for, to reach and to teach. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.